Let us pray. Most gracious God, we give thanks for your word. And we pray, Holy Spirit, by your power at work among us and through this word, we will receive this, your word, as life, as nourishment, as your way, your truth. Lead us faithfully, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are making our way through a series on creation this spring, the gift of creation, the call we have as stewards or shepherds of creation. We looked at that for a couple weeks. Then a couple more weeks, we we looked at a lot of, there's just imagery all over scripture that pulls from creation to express some of the fundamental truths about who God is and and how we are to live. And so we've, we've looked at water, we looked at bread. And then the next couple of weeks, we're looking at how much creation imagery is there in two specific passages related to how creation is employed to, to teach faithfulness. And today, our, our stop is in the book of Job, which may sound strange if you know anything about the book of Job and, and this great man of suffering. But the truth is, in Job, there are a good four chapters worth of creation imagery and discussion that is actually central to the whole of the book and we're going to look at portion of that reading from Job chapter 38 verses 4 through 11 and then chapter 39 verses 13 to 18 and 26 through 30 God speaks to Job where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth tell me if you have understanding who determined its measurements surely you know or who stretched the line upon it on what were its bases sunk, or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the heavenly beings shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed bounds for it, set bars and doors and said, Thus shall you come, thus far shall you come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stopped. And then down into chapter 39, God continues. The ostrich's wings flap wildly through its pinion, though its pinions lack plumage. For it leaves its eggs to the earth and lets them be warmed on the ground, forgetting that a foot may crush them and that a wild animal may trample them. It deals cruelly with its young as if they were not its own, though its labor should be in vain. Yet it has no fear because God has made it forget wisdom and given it no share in understanding. When it spreads its feathers aloft, it laughs at the horse and its rider. Is it by your wisdom that the hawk soars and spreads its wings toward the south? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes its nest on high? It lives on the rock and makes its home in the fastness of the rocky crag, for there it spies the prey. Its eyes see it from far away. Its young ones suck up blood, and where the slain are, there it is. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And then from the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 16 to 21. I pray that, according to the riches of his glory, he may grant that you may be strengthened in your inner being with power through his spirit, And that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith as you are being rooted and grounded in love. 
I pray that you may have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who by the power at work within us is able to accomplish abundantly far more than all we can ask or imagine. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. The word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Some of you know the book of Proverbs, and it is full of these great bits of wisdom where these one and two liners that that have something of an equation at work. For instance, you'll have plenty of the Proverbs express something along the lines of Proverbs 12, 21. No ill befalls the righteous, but the wicked are filled with trouble. To walk in God's way, the good way, the upright way, there's no ill. It's the wicked that run into the problems. It's the wicked that have trouble. Or or another one, the plans of the diligent surely lead to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. Hard work, diligent work, focused work, that that leads to prosperity, that leads to abundance. Hasty work, get-rich-quick schemes, you end up empty, poor. And and this wisdom has much to commend to it, much truth to it. If if you do this, then, then this. But what happens when the equation fails? When, when the equation does not end up working? That really is what the book of Job is about. Also a book out of the wisdom tradition. We are told from the outset that Job is a righteous man. You may remember this story. Here's a man who follows God, who fears the Lord. And he has much. He is, he's a man of, of means. And then one day, enemy forces come along and they, they take all of Job's oxen and donkeys and kill some of Job's servants. All the while, a fire breaks out and, and kills still his other servants and, and his sheep. And in one fell swoop, all of these lives are lost and his entire business is collapsed. That same day, a great wind strikes Job's house. It kills all of Job's children. And shortly thereafter, Job contracts leprosy. Here is a good man and he loses all of his wealth. Here is a good and righteous man and he loses most of his family and all of his servants. Here is a good man and he becomes painfully ill. For Job, the Proverbs equation is not working. Job is in some ways emblematic of that question that gets asked every generation. Why do bad things happen to good people, not perfect people, not sinless people, but, but, but people trying to, to follow God's way and, and, and love their neighbor. Why does it happen to them? Why? Why this debilitating accident to them, to us? Why this result for the baby? Why another bombing in the church? They were just trying to worship. Why can we never return to our homeland? What did we do? Why this diagnosis? Even on Mother's Day, when there is rightly so much good to celebrate among the mothers and grandmothers, the great-grandmothers, the mother figures, there are some this day who bear uniquely the weight of why questions. And in particular, as people of faith, we wonder why God? 
Where are you in all of this broken equation that should work, right? How could you let this happen? What, what, what do you, God, have to say about this? Suffering, tragedy, wrong, ill, injustice. And there's a lot going on in the book of Job that we can't nearly get to this morning. But suffice it to say, Job longs to hear directly from God about not only Job's real suffering, but about the unjust suffering he sees in the world. And in chapter 38, in this fairly lengthy book, finally, God responds. We read a portion of that moments ago. And God addresses the weighty questions of suffering, tragedy, pain, but not directly. Right? Not by answering Job's questions. Instead, God responds to Job by taking him on a tour of creation, of all things. Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who, who determined its measurements? Who stretched the line out upon it, the measuring line for designing the earth? Rather abruptly, Job is taken from his suffering and, 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 and pointed questions about the suffering to considerations of the foundation of the earth. And God speaks of God's self as a master builder who has carefully determined the measurements of the earth's foundation and, and surveyed or traced the lines just so. I wonder who among us has known a confident engineer type or contractor type in our life. The kind, they know their measurements. They trust their precision. They give it to you and they say, yes, I know, this is right. I did the work. God speaks of God's self as a master builder who knows what God is doing. Consider the blueprints of the universe that account for all of the biggest pieces and all of the smallest detail. Who outlined them? Who ensured all those measurements? And then God moves from the foundation of the earth to the sea. In the ancient world, the sea was representative of of the chaotic forces of evil in the world. Who knit the sea together behind closed door? Who, Who brought it forth gushing from the womb and prescribed bounds for it and said, Thus far you shall come and no farther. God speaks as one who's knit the sea, as a as a midwife who's helped deliver the sea and then and then set these bounds. Job, to me, the sea is like a babe. And then God takes Job to the middle of the the desert where there are no people at all. And God points out how the rain is falling upon this vast area that no one sees or even considers or goes to. And yet God has remained mindful of that. What do you make of that, Job? In chapter 38, it goes on like this for a bit. And God doesn't state anything like this outright to Job. But, but at least one question that is emerging is, might there be more going on in any given situation than you could ever comprehend, Job? And underneath even that, more importantly, can you trust me, Job? If I'm this precise at this magnitude, if I have this much attentive care to so many realities about which you don't even have an idea... Not answerings to suffering, not even questions about suffering, so much as implied questions that maybe arise as a reframing happens. And then, you heard, chapter 
38 moves into chapter 39 and, and God takes the creation to her from the grand and expansive realities of creation and, and brings them down into the details. God, if you read chapter 39, takes time to, to point out the deer and the donkey and the ox and the horse and the ostrich. Did you know the ostrich gets six full verses of consideration by God? It's sort of an amusing thought until we realize and remember the the gravity of what Job is facing, having lost everything. I mean, can you imagine someone's just lost their entire family and and, and you want to take them to the zoo and, and point out the ostrich? But among other animals, God... God wants Job to consider the ostrich. And in particular, God points out the oddity of this creature whose, whose wings flap wildly and, 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 and can't fly. And it, even though it can't fly, which seems so foundational to, to being whatever it is that makes up for a bird, we read, But when it spreads its feathers and runs, it laughs at horse and its rider. For the ostrich can outrun the horse. The ostrich, Job, may appear to have been overlooked, handicapped, wronged. But what about the paradox that makes it even faster than the most majestic of all animals on earth? What do you make of that, Job? Does such paradoxical observation hold true with anything else? Is at least the implied question behind God continues with the theme of birds. God asked Job, who gave the hawks understanding to know when to migrate south? How's that work, Job? How do, how do eagles know when and where and how to nest? And, and how does the eagle spy its prey from afar and its young ones? How do they know to get there? And they, quote, suck up the blood where the slain are, as verse 30 puts it. Job, how do they know to do that? And imply, Job, is it possible that even in death, even in where one is slain, there is a feeding of life happening? The creation tour continues, and we don't have time to consider it all this morning, but suffice it to say, God's tack is strange at best and, and perhaps just offensive at worst. God, deal with the questions. If... If you're going to give Job a tour, shouldn't you be stopping off at some of the great seminaries, some of the great universities that Job might be able to mine the depths of knowledge and the why and wherefore of suffering? Should not Job be taken to the great philosophers, scribes, and rabbis of the day? But you take him to see land and sea and ostrich and donkey and eagle. Five-year-olds take trips to Maymont Park. Does not Job, do, do not we deserve more of an explanation with what we face. And I love how Presbyterian minister and writer Frederick Beekner observes uh, how he observes what God does in the book of Job. And he, and he says, you know, one of the blunders of uh, religious people, one of the blunders religious people are particularly fond of making is the attempt to be more spiritual than God. We are sure that the deepest and most probing of questions and pains and problems need the highest of theological abilities, the the deepest of depths of knowledge, the most learned of learned, the wisest of wise in the room if we're going to figure it out, if we're going to have hope. And God thinks actually if you're in the midst of great suffering or you're carrying the suffering another, perhaps it would be a gift if you would just walk among God's handiwork for a while. And right in the midst of the suffering and the pain, consider the complexity of creation. Just notice the oddity of creation, the beauty of creation, the strangeness of creation, 
the death and life rhythm of creation, the paradox of creation. And what if no answers came, but if amid creation something opened within, as it eventually does for Job by the end? What if without answers, but somehow uh, amid the very creation that speaks without words, as Psalm 19 puts it, what if right in that space a measure of trust is born again, as it is with Job, or even a measure of hope is formed? What if what makes for a five-year-old's field trip is also the theology class God gives for the most advanced forms of suffering known to humankind? There, there is an unexpectedness in God's approach here. And it risks being received as outright foolishness in light of the gravitas of Job's pain. And yet it does. It administers to Job. It has a way in time of, of opening something, even a, a deep trust. And in some ways it foreshadows still a greater surprise, still a greater foolishness of God. Because God's clearest response to the problem of suffering and evil and tragedy is that God comes among us as Jesus. And he is righteous, but unlike Job, he's entirely righteous, utterly sinless, utterly powerful. He is God, Right in all perfection and strength and love, and he lets the Proverbs equation fail. Jesus is nailed upon a cross by an unjust trial that he does not deserve. He, he on that cross, takes upon all measure of the world's pain and suffering and evil. His, his skin receives all measure of woundedness. Jesus is the Job of, of Job's. On the cross, he bears every form of pain, including death itself. And we say, well, how is that an answer to my suffering, to our suffering? That, that doesn't tell me why this has happened, that, why we're going through this, while they're going through that, why this is going on in our world. Jesus' ultimate answer to suffering and evil is not to explain it, but to do what seems must seem so very foolish to be utterly righteous and good and able to step away from the mess and the pain and to choose instead to experience empathize enter into the full depth of suffering and tragedy known to any of us god's deepest wisdom is to come alongside us in the darkness The assurance being that with this God, we have a God who truly empathizes, truly gets it at a core level. And with this particular God, there is always somehow, three days later, a rising that is far more than we could have ever asked for or imagined. That's the basic promise. Or, as the eagles all too routinely proclaim, With this God, even in death, there is a feeding of life happening. I have shared before how my parents divorced when I was 16. A very painful season of life, all all the more so because we did things the right way. Right, we went to church, we prayed, we read our Bibles, we, we tried to love God and neighbor as individuals, as a family. And, and, and good things happen to good, not perfect people, but good people, diligent people, faithful people, right? That's the Proverbs equation. 
But know the equation, it, it fell apart. A break, a shame, a hurt. Not, not of, of Jobian level pain, but, but for me it was the first time I felt the whole equation break and, and it was devastating. And I had a good friend from, from church and from school, his name was David, and, and his folks had this, this lodge about two out, hours outside of Cincinnati where, where I lived, and it was in the farmlands of, of neighboring state, Kentucky. And since we just learned to drive, we'd get out to this lodge every, every few months, and we'd build a fire outside, we'd cook up a dinner, we'd hang out, we'd talk or we'd not talk, we'd, we'd discuss the divorce or, or not, and all of where I was. He'd ask questions, he'd, he'd try to understand, he'd, he was good about refraining from, from too much commentary. And truth is, I, I really can't remember many of the words we shared in those hours and hours of reflection. I can, I can barely remember the lodge itself, the look or the layout. I remember two things about this experience. I remember how dark it was. And I remember how bright it was. The stunning array of stars, their beauty, their silent holiness against that deep backdrop. And then my friend, the gift of an empathizing presence who offered no explanations but by way of questions just sought to bear the pain. And I remember the darkness and I remember the brightness of the stars and a friend. And I also remember how surprisingly far the brightness carried. David's friendship was actually one of the instrumental reasons I chose to go to Davidson College in North Carolina where, where he had chosen to go ahead of me. It was an instrumental reason why I eventually, in my freshman year, decided to take this class called Letters and Thoughts of Paul because I want to learn more about this God and these equations and this love. And it's in this class that I meet this young woman named Michelle. And now we have been married nearly 15 years and and we celebrate this particular Mother's Day with such joy as we look upon that miraculous adoption of Leo two years ago about which so many of you offered fervent prayers. I still don't have answers for the suffering, the pain, the failed equation, the ache. But with this God, three days later, there really is a rising you could never have asked for or imagined had you put it together yourself. With whatever you may carry this day or whatever you carry on behalf of another this day, may you take up God's invitation unto creation and receive that healing speech without words that is spoken in the paradox, the beauty, the surprise. And may you receive, too, the gift of God's utter and profound empathy, perhaps made known to you by way of a light on one side of the pew or the other. Amen.